This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 154. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host today, Riley Bowman. And today I have on the show with me a very special guest, and his name is Andy Brown, which I'll bring on here in just a moment. He is the man that stopped the active shooter in 1994 at Fairchild Air Force Base. You are not going to want to miss this interview. In fact, uh, I think after listening to this interview together with Andy, you're going to definitely want to make sure you go out and pick out pick up a copy of his book, Warnings Unheeded, Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base. Uh, fairly newly released book. I just got done reading it. I talked with him about it, of course. Uh, a fascinating book. Very relevant, very important content, but it's also a really good read. I was compelled from the start. I just could not put it down. So you're not going to want to miss it, both this interview today as well as this book. Go check it out. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, Warnings Unheeded, Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base. I'll, I'll send. I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Because we got so much great content out of this interview with Andy today, I've decided we'll split this episode into two parts. So this is part one of this two-part episode, uh, an interview with Andy Brown. And for some of you out there, I'm sorry, I'm going to torture you for like a week, and I'm going to make you wait for part two, which we, we will release that next week. So stay tuned and stand by for part two. You're not going to want to miss either one of these parts of this interview because it is that good. One of the things that will become clear to you, I think, is the, the need to be prepared and ready and well-trained to respond to potential threats, whether that be an active shooter incident, which is a large focus of what we'll be talking about today, or if it's defending you or your family at home. You know you need to be trained. You know you need to be, be prepared. And one of the things we put together to try to help people do that better, more quickly, more efficiently, and for a reasonable price, is by creating Guardian Nation. So if you haven't already checked out Guardian Nation, I would encourage you, and this this is our, our main sponsor of this episode today, you've got to go check out Guardian Nation at guardianation.com, where Guardian Nation members get access to special members-only training videos, all kinds of awesome content, including our archive of all of our past Guardian Nation live broadcasts, as well as any of the you can watch the live broadcasts in person live each month that we do but you don't want to miss out on the archive we have lots of wonderful awesome informative interviews from the past uh, plus you get 10% off everything sold at concealedcarry.com and don't forget about that awesome box of gear we sent out each quarter so anyway make sure you go check out guardianation.com and make sure that you're being trained and prepared today's episode is also brought to you by Andrew Branca's Law of Self-Defense, as well as the Brave Response Holster. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and start off today's episode by playing back some audio. Now, these are 911 calls, essentially, uh, recorded audio from this event 23 years ago in, at Fairchild Air Force Base. Very intense, compelling stuff. So listen in. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, I'm 
911. Is this reference shots being fired on Fairchild Base? Yes, it is. A hospital. There's a crazy guy out here. We're shooting with an automatic weapon. Hospital. Huh? Ma'am? Okay. It's right. one individual. All I got to see was a weapon. Looks like an AK-47. Crime stop, you're reporting a crime or emergency. Uh, an emergency crime. There's a guy having a hospital running around with a shotgun. Copy. Alright, we're sent to the over. Okay. Child police officer patrol. We have an alarm at the ER hospital. Informational, we have an individual in the hospital running around with a shotgun. Copy police one. Stop, you're pointing crime or emergency. Emergency crime, I don't know. There's a guy bolting out of uh, building 9010 right across the street from the hospital with a gun, firing. Running out of building 9010? Yes, right across the street from the hospital. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Child, please, all responding control. The individual just ran out of building 9010 across from the hospital, firing off rounds out of a shotgun. Copy one. There you go. Like I said, very compelling 911 call audio uh, from this incident on June 20th, 1994. One of the voices you hear in that recording is Mr. Andy Brown, who is, uh, his call sign that day was Police 6. And you hear him come on the radio and, uh, well, he first says that he's down, that he shot him, um, but it didn't sound like uh, the dispatcher heard him or understood that. Uh, so he repeated again uh, that I shot him. He's down. Uh, and then they, you know, they got that message. <clears throat> it's not very often that you get to spend an hour or, or two talking with someone that uh, is frankly a, a hero like this, that um, has done that thing that many of us don't hope, you know, we hope we don't ever have to respond and, and, uh, react to a situation like this, but in the event that we do, we hope that we can do so and respond effectively and also maintain the the calm, uh, collected composure that Mr. Brown demonstrated on that day as well. And so with that, it is my pleasure to have Andy Brown on the podcast today. Let me go ahead and play back that recorded interview now. 
All right. I have with me on the phone, Mr. Andy Brown, who is the author of Warnings Unheeded, Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base, uh, which is a book I just uh, recently finished reading. And I have to say, Andy, uh, I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself, but this was a pleasant surprise uh, from, you know, as far as a book is concerned. Um, you reached out to me and said, Hey, would you be interested in, in reading my book? And, uh, I said, heck yeah. <laughs> and it was, I don't mean this as a knock on you at all. It was way better than I expected. Well, thank you. Yeah. You never know what to expect from a first time author. So I understand your, your hesitation, but I did the best that I could. It took me seven years to write it. And most of that was research, but also making sure it was the best book that I could possibly put out. Well, I know it was a, li- a labor of love. I mean, you said it took seven years to get it all put together. Uh, and I could tell there was a great deal of research that went into the book and went into the, the story writing. Uh, but yeah, for a first uh, book, I was very impressed with uh, how it all came together. Uh, the writing is much more mature than uh, you would expect from a first-time author a lot of times, uh, and and very thoughtful in, in your organization. And, and a lot of that thought really paid off, I think, because the, the way it reads, I mean, it is a... a a true story, you know, it's a, it's a nonfiction book, but it reads more like a fiction book in a lot of, a lot of ways. I mean, you definitely, I never lose sense of it being, you know, I never mistake it as being a novel, but it's a lot more enjoyable to read than I expected it to be, if that makes sense. No, yeah, I understand that. I believe the type of writing is called creative nonfiction, where it's an informative book. It has a lot of information in there, but it reads like a novel. It has a lot of the techniques of novel writing, but everything in it is true. Yeah. And, and so with that, uh, I, I, I'm i going to probably mention this more than once, I'm sure, but I'm recommending this book for listeners of our podcast to, to go and read because, one, it's it's a very good book as far as the, the information and the educational aspect within it. Uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the story of these two tragedies that happened at Fairchild Air Force Base. This is what, 1994? And I mean, so that was a while ago, but these lessons are still relevant today, and especially in the active shooter context. And in a minute, we're going to get into some of the specifics as to what happened on June 20th, 1994. But it it also has a lot of lessons learned uh it's not just the the active shooter piece. We have this story about the B-52 crash that happened a few days after the active shooter incident. Um, on the whole, there's lessons to be learned about warning signs and what we need to do as far as acting, I think, on those warning signs. And, and, and I think that's kind of your basic premise of this book is, as it's contained in the title, Warnings Unheeded. We, we, if we see warning signs, we need to act on those. I assume I'm reading yeah. into that correctly. Yep, absolutely. There were several warning signs that uh, the perpetrator put out, and a lot of people picked up on them, and some of them didn't know what to do. Some of them were in denial and ignored them, and others who brought it to the attention of superiors 
were ignored. They, their uh, warnings were shot down. So basically, I just wrote the book to, to show somebody the steps that a person, a perpetrator, goes through as they're progressing toward their crimes so that it won't be the first time that they see those symptoms and behaviors play out so that they'll be able to recognize it if they encounter that in their daily life and then know what to do and and be persistent until that person gets help or is stopped. Yeah. Well, you did a very nice job, Andy. Uh, you, you weaved these two tales, even though they're not like tale is usually associated with a fiction story, but you, you weave these two stories together very cleverly, very smartly. There's a lot of correlation and, and similarities between the stories as far as the warnings that were unheeded, whether it be the B-52 bomber crash or the active shooter uh, situation. It's, you know, the, like you said, if we see the warning signs, we got to act. But before we get too far along here, Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, you know, who you are and, and, and why uh, you were the right man. I, I'm going to say you were the right guy to write this book. Uh, you, you lived it. You were there. You saw it firsthand, obviously. Uh, but tell us a little bit about who you are and your background. Well, I, I grew up in Washington State and I've always had a fascination with firearms. And when I I didn't shoot a whole lot of handguns, but mostly like a BB guns and 22 rifles until I graduated high school and joined the Air Force. And that was my first real introduction to handguns. But ever since I started shooting the M9, I've, I've pretty much carried a handgun every day since then, and that was over 20 years ago. Um, I would enter into the security police, which then became the security forces. It's the military police of the Air Force. And I took the job really seriously. I didn't think the training that we received, which was, it was good training, but I didn't think it was sufficient enough to prepare me for everything I might encounter, specifically a lethal force incident. So I took steps to seek out additional training outside of what we received in the Air Force. Read a lot of books and learned a technique called mental rehearsal, where I would mentally envision a lethal force encounter that I might might uh, encounter and practice the steps that I would use to prevail in that. And I also bought a clone of the M9 um, to practice with off-duty because we had to turn our weapons in after the end of our shift. So I would practice long-distance shooting and, and just going out in the woods and shooting pop cans and pine cones. Um, I was stationed at three different bases before I reached... Actually, Fairchild was my third base in 1994. I was 24 years old and had been a, in the security police for five years when the incident happened. Hmm. And are you able to go into much detail as to what it is that you do nowadays? Sure. Yeah, I got out after 10 years, five years after the shooting, I got out of the Air Force and kicked around at some industrial jobs because I was kind of burned out on law enforcement, had a little bit of a, some stress reaction, had a lot of increased anxiety and such. So 
eventually I was able to, to bring that under control, and now I'm working for the Border Patrol in Spokane, Washington. I'm not a an agent. I don't have arrest authority, but I do get to carry a gun and a badge again. I'm working uh, in seized property. When the agent sees anything along the border, I help process that. It's a good job. I like the people that I'm working with. So great. It's good to be in. You know, it's good to be in a law enforcement field again. But I, I don't have to actually deal with the dirt bags. So <laughs> at my age, that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've also worked as a firearms instructor, or maybe you currently still do in some fashion. Uh, what's your background with as far as instruction? Well, I'm starting to get into instructing. I'm, I'm helping Marty Hayes at the Firearms Academy of Seattle. He's developing or has developed an active shooter interdiction course. And I've been to, he's had four of them so far in the last two years. And I go there and give a presentation on the active shooting that happened at Fairchild and then assist him as a range officer. And, and just in his words, I'm acting as a, as like the resident expert on active shootings, just helping the, the students with their firearms fundamentals and answering any questions they might have, which is, I'm enjoying that. It's good to, to be able to hang out with gun folk and uh, help them learn to shoot and teach them their their limitations when it comes to long-distance shots and, and what to do in an active shooter incident. Mm. Awesome. Well, I, I think it's wonderful that... Uh, that you are sharing your knowledge about active shooter uh, events uh, with with everyone else out, you know, in the public. Uh, because this is information, I think, that needs to get out there. I've attended a couple of active shooter, uh, uh, well, one was a seminar, one was more of a training class. And, I mean, these are real events that do and will continue to happen in our society, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully we can prevent more and more of those. Uh, that's obviously uh, the ideal goal. But uh, in the event that something does happen, uh, it would be wise for us to to be able to respond effect- effectively to them. And uh, I suspect yeah, that... absolutely. The uh, law enforcement is rarely ever going to be on scene or arrive in time to prevent these incidents. The people who are the first responders are the citizens that are on the scene at the time. So... It's good to see people taking their training seriously and 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 getting this training and the skills that, that they need to intervene in, in these incidents. Right. I mean, one lesson to be learned uh, from many incidents, uh, and not I might be kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I think this is really important for, for people to understand that in most active shooter uh, incidents, the thing that one of the first things that 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 can be done and needs to be done that will save lives is some sort of counter ambush to that attack in some fashion i mean that that guy you know or, or woman but the active shooter is going to continue being an active shooter he's going to continue taking lives and firing rounds until for whatever reason he decides to be done or he or she is stopped or slowed down because if we see incidents too, where you know maybe someone is able to at least just slow them down for a time, and that's going to save lives too. Yeah, yeah. There was a couple of incidents 
that happened at the Fairchild shooting where individuals were unarmed, but they still intervened in, in some way. And it, it did, it saved the people who were in the, the vicinity, although the shooter kept moving and was seeking less, seeking easier targets. Right. But yeah, that, that intervention did slow them down or at least save some lives in that area. Yep. Indeed. Well, great. Uh, you know, thanks for, uh, you know, explaining a little bit of your background and, and now hopefully folks have a little bit more of a context as to, to who you are and, and, and why you, uh, put together this book and also why you have a very personal, uh, association with the event that took place in June of 1994. Um, tell us why did you write the book warnings unheeded? Well, the book is, it's like I've said, before, um, the book is what I wanted somebody else to write. That's the book that I wanted to read about this incident. I wanted to learn as much as I could about it and also put that information out there for others to learn from. There's a lot of commonalities between these active shooting incidents that uh, if we can all, if we can learn from them and and find things that are similar and and between them all, we'd, we'd be better apt to um, prevent them in the first place or intervene earlier. Mental health plays a, a big part in a lot of them, and uh, that's something that's not addressed nearly enough. The politicians and such are always quick to go after the firearm, and they rarely address the mental health aspect of it, where if we can get these people the help that they need, or at least remove them from society if that's necessary, then these, at least 50% of these incidents could be prevented. Not, and that's not to say that everybody with severe mental illness is a threat or that they'll become violent, but 50% of the incidents that occur are committed by the seriously mentally ill. So I wrote the book not only to honor the people who lived and died during the incident, but to just put the word out there so that we can learn from our history. Mm. Yeah. I mean, obviously we'd prefer not to, to repeat, uh, the bad parts of history. And, um, you know, that was actually one of the first things I noticed in the book and reading it. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the main focus for our purposes in, to, in today's, uh, this interview with, uh, Mr. Brown on the podcast is going to be more focused on the active shooter piece, but this book is really, it's two side-by-side stories that are really occurring simultaneously, um, the events leading up to these. Uh, we, we have the uh, shooting that uh, uh, the perpetrator, uh, Dean Melberg, perpetrated on June 20th, 1994, and then we have the uh, B-52 uh, bomber uh, crash on uh, what was it June twenty fourth I think did I get that right it was yeah yep. and and so those are two events that are, you know and and the things leading up to them are occurring simultaneously two very tragic events that both occurred at Fairchild Air Force Base uh, within days of each other which I'm sure that that was just very challenging for uh, those of you stationed uh, and in the general you know locale of Fairchild Air Force Base. I'm sure that was very challenging 
mentally and emotionally uh, for for everyone involved. But you know, obviously, you you got through it, and and hopefully the the thing comes out of it is that we learn from these things. But one of the first things you highlighted was actually another B fifty two. Uh, I think it was B-52, right? Another bomber crash uh, a few years prior to this that I think the reason you brought that into the story somewhat was as a kind of a foreshadowing and a look. We made some mistakes before and some of the things that you know led up to these crashes were these large planes were being used in uh, uh, air shows. And some of that was, you know, we were pushing limits beyond what they should have been to kind of show off what these planes could do. And and so you 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 shared the 1987 crash and said, "Hey, look, you know, <laughs> this happened." And then it happened again. Was that I, I assume that was intentional, and that's what I took from it was, "Look, here's a little forewarning that when something happens, we need to learn from it and then we need to really take steps, active steps." To keep it from happening again, whether it be a bomb or a, a, an airplane crash or an active shooter situation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you you picked up on that. That's that's what I was doing with that story. The uh, the Air Force was starting to use these heavy, what they call heavy aircraft, in air shows performing aerobatics. And in the 1987 crash, it was a KC-135, a refueler, which... Oh, that's right. Is mm-hmm. a, it's a, a modified airliner. And the B-52 is a is a Boeing aircraft that's even larger than some airliners. And they're using these planes in air shows performing aerobatic stunts that you would think could should only be done by a single-engine jet fighter. But for some reason, one of the... Uh, Generals in the Air Force waived the regulations that prohibited heavy aircraft to be used in aerobatics and started a an air show team so he could show off the capabilities of the, air, the aircraft. And right before the first air show that they were supposed to perform in, it, one of the aircraft crashed, and they didn't learn their lesson from that. And that's what we had happen in '94. In they were doing the same similar event or stunts and failed to learn from their history. And then even after the 94 crash, a lot of people said they learned their lesson from that. But then in 2010, a cargo aircraft that was similar in size to the B-52 crashed up in Alaska training for an air show. Mm. So people aren't learning the, the right lessons. The Air Force has learned a lot from both of these incidents, but there's still a lot that they can learn I'm, I'm thinking yeah yeah certainly seems that way so let's talk now a little bit more about the uh the days the months uh, perhaps years leading up to june 20th 1994 the perpetrator of this uh shooting was uh his name was dean melberg and he was an air force airman and uh someone that shouldn't have been in the Air Force to begin with, most likely. Can you give us a little bit of the background and, and as to who he is? And that's a big part of your of your book is, I think, kind of showing who he was as a person uh, and, and perhaps giving us a little insight as to why he committed the acts that he, that he committed. 
Sure. It, Melberg was socially awkward in high school and was bullied quite a bit. And he thought he found his escape when he was accepted into the Air Force right after high school. But at every stage of his career, he was identified as somebody in need of mental health treatment or counseling, at least, in basic training and at his tech school and at his first base. People like his uh, instructor at basic and his instructors at tech school, they identified him as needing some mental health treatment. And when he was seen by psychologists, they recommended immediate discharge from the military. But that recommendation was had to be approved by the the commander of the school or the commander of the basic training squadron, and they overruled them for one reason or another. At Fairchild Air Force Base, he had troubles with his roommates, and he threatened to kill his roommate at tech school, and he made vague threats to harm his roommate at Fairchild, and that led to him being seen by mental health there at Fairchild again, and they also recommended his immediate discharge from the military. But for one reason or another, the commander of his squadron at Fairchild overruled that recommendation, thinking that they could give him more time to adjust to military life. When he uh, continued, he, he obsessed over his roommate's complaints and tried to seek legal action against his roommate for making complaints against him. That led to him being sent to a mental health facility in Texas, where he spent over 90 days being diagnosed and that was the first time where he was officially diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. People thought he was hearing voices, and he developed a lot of paranoia and held grudges against people. He thought everybody was out to get him. And for one reason or another, he was allowed to stay in the military, even though he was recommended twice for discharge while he was at that facility. And instead of being sent back to Fairchild, where he would have been discharged, from the military, he was sent to another base in New Mexico, where he was quickly identified as a mental health problem and discharged from the military. But he was discharged, but didn't have any mandated mental health treatment in the civilian world or in the military. So he was basically just removed from the military and out on his own. And he had fixated on the doctors at Fairchild, believing that they were responsible for his the end of his military career that he coveted. So he returned to Fairchild and purchased a Mac-90 rifle, which was a clone or a variation of an AK-47. And he also picked up a 75-round drum magazine and took a cab out to the Fairchild Hospital. Right. And there's an, you want me to continue with... Uh, I'm going to I'm going to put the pause button there for just a minute. All right. Cuz I got a couple of follow-up questions about uh Dean Melberg and 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 like I said the months and years leading up to to 1994. Um reading the book, I mean, there were all sorts of not just I mean there's obviously the hints, the the actual um his medical records and and all of the evaluations that were done. Uh, on him, uh, but there was also hints that you dropped into the book. I mean, they're real events 
but it really sets the stage, right? Uh, there was a situ- there was a situation or a story, and I don't remember if that happened at Cannon Air Force Base. That was the one in uh, New Mexico, right? And Correct. Uh, and then also, it may, it may have been Cannon, it may have been Fairchild. I don't remember which one, but you talked or you shared the uh, the time where he walked through. I think it was a lab. Yeah, and, and a dry he, run. Yes, he did a dry run walking through there, sort of like. And he was holding something in his hands too, right? And I don't remember what he was holding in his hands. Yeah, it was a, a case to a uh, large torque wrench, so it was similar to a rifle case, but right. And that—that that was boy, that was a point in the story where I mean, my head wanted to explode <laughs> because there were other airmen and other Air Force personnel there that witnessed this. And there was, and I'm sorry, I don't remember all the names terribly well. There's, there's actually just a little warning. If you're reading the book, it might be helpful. And I should have done this. <laughs> it might be helpful to write down uh, a lot of the names you're going to encounter uh, to help sort of remind you of where they fit into the story. Uh, because I realized probably a little bit too late. I'm like, Oh shoot, who was that again? You know, uh, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of people involved, which actually, as I think about it now, that leads even further credence to the idea that there were many opportunities along the way to that where, where someone could have stopped this from happening, but didn't. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Sam Prescott is the pseudonym that I gave to that Sergeant who was at Cannon Air Force Base. And he was telling everybody who would listen that this guy, Melbourne is going to, He's going to snap, but he's uh, got postal worker syndrome that he's going to come to to the office someday and start shooting people. He had a clear fear of Melberg, which is one of the warning signs, one of the traits of a potentially violent person. But he even went so far as to predict that he was going to commit violence at the workplace. And he was in, Melberg worked in the precision maintenance electronic laboratory. He was a laboratory technician calibrated electronic equipment and such. And Prescott was in the laboratory when Melberg entered the lab holding a large case and he was cradling it as if it was a rifle. And he walked through the lab methodically with that case leveled as if it was a rifle being shot from the hip and he was tapping the side of the rifle as if he was firing it. And he walked through the lab, tapping it and pointing it at everybody in there as Prescott ducked and hid under a desk. And then when Melberg reached the end of the lab, he turned and did the same maneuver as he was exiting and just just left the office. Prescott jumped up and yelled, every one of you people are are dead. Did you see that? That was a dry run. He's he's coming back, you know. He was was sounding the alarm and, and people weren't listening to him. They thought he was paranoid and and he was overreacting, but he was was pretty much dead on. He just didn't have the the correct base identified where this incident was going to happen. Yeah. There were other incidents when Melbert was awaiting his decision at the mental health facility in Texas. They released him from the hospital while they decided what to do with him, and he met a girl who he confided in that Somebody had done him wrong, and and he was going to pay them back. And he said the police were going to have to bring him down. 
and that they're in, was going to go out with a bang. They're going to have to take him down. And she didn't really know what he meant by that, which in the, you know, afterwards we can all say that's pretty clear that, that he was going to commit some act that the police would need to, to stop him. You would think that that's a clear sign of an intent to commit violence, but she didn't think that he had that in him, that he was capable of doing that. But that's just one of many incidents where there was clear red flags and that were missed or ignored. Mm. Wow. There was one other thing, too, I wanted to get out there as far as this uh, episode today on the podcast that that I think just sort of paints a picture as to, you know, kind of helps one see into the mind of, of Airman Melberg. Uh, when he was one of his first roommates, uh, that roommate came to him at one point and probably because he suspected that uh, Melberg had a little bit of money because Melberg, never, he, he, he didn't spend a lot. He saved quite a bit of what he got paid uh, as a lowly airman, right? Uh, but that roommate came to him and said, hey, man, can I borrow a little bit of cash to, to buy a car? And, and explain to us uh, kind of the reaction that Melberg had uh, to that. Yeah, that was his first roommate at, at Fairchild. I had access to Melberg's journal entries, which gave a lot of insight into how his mind worked. He interpreted benign and innocent comments as threatening and hurtful, which is another symptom or sign that a lot of paranoid schizophrenic people, they share that uh, reading dangerous intent into innocent comments and such. So Melberg's roommate wanted to buy a car, and he found one for sale, but he was short a couple, maybe $400, so he wanted to, to borrow that from Melberg with the intention of paying it back you know, in two weeks when he got paid again. And Melberg turned him down, saying that that he didn't think that the roommate should be asking to borrow money from a friend, that it would put their friendship in jeopardy, and that it would even uh, jeopardize his military career. And he wrote about that in his journal as if it was quite a an insult and a threat, and that he somehow believed that that Melberg could lose his career if he loaned money to this, this guy. I don't understand it, but that was just one of the odd ways that his mind worked. And you see a lot of examples of that in his journal entries where you get one side of a story from one person where they are having a normal and innocent conversation with him, and then he goes home and writes about it in his journal as if the person was was a threat to him or his career. It's it's frightening, actually. It really is. I'll tell you, that, that, that that's one way of putting it, frightening. Uh, reading those journal entries from Melberg was very frightening. Uh, you see how he takes everyday events and like you said, very benign situations where no harm was meant, no no uh, feelings were meant to be hurt or anything like that. And the way he interprets those and twists them into great injustices against him uh, was indeed frightening. His words in the general in the journal, frankly, uh, that was another part of the book that I thought really added 
to the story as far as you, you really see and get a sense for how this guy is thinking, which is clearly not, you know, not uh, accurate and, and uh, clear thinking. Uh, his interpretation of the events and his life around him are completely warped uh, in a lot of regards. Uh, that's It's an aspect that wouldn't have been there in the book had you probably not had such access to those journals. Yes, yeah, definitely. That was a good find that, that was important to the story. Um, and it shows that a lot of people who were familiar with this story think, oh, that the Air Force wouldn't have accepted him in the air, in the military or if they would have discharged him earlier in his career, this all could have been avoided. Well, it might have been avoided at Fairchild, but eventually, with the way his mind processed things, he was eventually going to get a grudge against somebody and and feel that his only option was violence. And at some point in his life, he was going to commit an act of violence against somebody if there was no mental health intervention. That's that's what we need to focus on instead of taking the guns away from the good people that, that aren't going to commit violence, the people who want to defend themselves and others. That's not uh, going to solve these types of crimes. It's just we need to address the mental health issue and aspect of these incidents. Right. Yeah. So let... but you know that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, right? <laughs> of course. But, but, you know, it's, I'm glad you make that point because this is a story that uh, definitely reinforces, um, you know, that side of things, I think. I mean, if you take it in, a, in the appropriate context uh, and look at the facts, it's very clear that, uh, take you know, increased gun control would not have necessarily prevented uh, him from committing a heinous act. I mean, you could argue that, well, if we didn't have 70 or 75 round uh, magazines or drums, uh, then he wouldn't have had access to such a big magazine. But he still would have done something at some point that would have uh, involved the taking of life. Absolutely. In fact, that 75-round drum magazine was more of a hindrance to him because uh, several times he was observed having to clear a malfunction and rewind the tension on that drum magazine at a butterfly clip on the back of it that you had to wind to generate the spring tension to feed the rounds into the firearm and you had to stop periodically to continue winding that spring so that it would feed properly. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that here in just a minute. So let's continue on now with the with the with the timeline, with the story. So now that we, we get a sense for the the disturbed mental nature of, of Melberg uh, you've walked us up to the point that he's purchased a rifle, he's purchased some ammo, he's purchased uh, the magazine, the drum magazine, and uh, he he's catching a taxi ride to the Air Force Base. And at this point, like you said, uh, you explained a little bit ago, he's been discharged from the Air Force. Uh, he's have, had a hard time accepting that fact. Uh, and he is really focused on... Uh, a couple of the, the, the individuals at uh, Fairchild Air Force Base that, you know, particularly that treated him mentally and he feels that they have, they have wronged him. But anyway, he is in the taxi riding to the Air Force Base. Uh, take it from there. Okay. He was, uh, 
in the cab, and the cab driver mentioned in a statement that he felt that Melberg was either drunk or on drugs because of the way he was acting, because of his behavior. But he also realized that the styrofoam case sticking out of his gym bag was most likely a, a gun case. So he knew he had a rifle, and he assumed he was either crazy or drunk or drugged, but he still proceeded to drive him to an Air Force base, onto an Air Force base, and to the to the hospital there, which was another opportunity to prevent this. And I don't say that to disparage the taxi driver. I intentionally didn't put his name in the book because of that, but it was just a, just a learning opportunity. He could have, and probably in hindsight should have, driven to the gate and told the security policeman there what his suspicions were. But anyway, the uh, hospital was located off, just off base, just outside the perimeter. So he had free access to drive right up to the hospital. But even if it had been behind the perimeter fence, Melberg had a transitional ID card that allowed him entry to any Air Force installation other than Cannon because he had been barred from that base due to his behavior. He took the cab to the hospital and and entered the annex building, which is a long, narrow military, an old military barracks that had been converted to office spaces, and that was the location of the mental health facility. So he walked into the first floor of that building with his gym bag, which contained the rifle case, and he entered a bathroom where he went into a stall and, and prepped the rifle, loaded it. And once he was ready, he walked out of the bathroom and down the hall to the offices of the base psychologist and psycho and psychiatrist. And he kicked in their doors, respectively, and shot them once in the chest each. And then he fired another round down the hall as he was exiting the annex and shot a woman who was just outside the annex building who was on a smoke break and shot her in the arm and then proceeded across the parking lot and entered into the main hospital where he continued firing fairly nonstop at anybody that he could see, men, women, and children. It should be known too, right, uh, Andy, that Melberg may have been a crazy person, but he was actually a pretty, pretty good shot, right? He was a good shot with the M16 when it came to qualifications. He managed to earn the expert ribbon. But the majority of his shots with this AK-47 clone, I don't know if he was familiar with that weapon from his civilian life or not, but he was firing pretty much from the hip Yeah. the majority of the shots until, until he got to me and he was shouldering the weapon and firing a little more deliberately. Most of the wounded were shot waist level, except for the two doctors. that He, he may have aimed those shots because yeah, they were shot in the chest, and they died fairly instantly from their wounds and heart and liver damage. Mm-hmm. But the, after that, he walked rapidly through the hospital grounds and, and buildings with the weapon at his hip, firing continuously. Right, because at that point, he doesn't really care who he hurts. He's just... Whoever comes into his in his in you know in his path, he's going to shoot at. Yeah, he didn't seem to be too selective. Um, he hit women 
and men and elderly and children just as much as, as any other. There was no specific person or type of person that he was targeting, but he also didn't didn't care to avoid hitting uh, young young children and elderly. Yeah. Pretty much indiscriminate. Yeah, that was one of the harder parts for me to read as a father of uh, you know four young children myself, and I know you have children of your own. You didn't at that time, but uh, that that's uh, that's it's tough, tough reading that. Yeah, yeah, it hurts. Yeah, it's it is tough to to read that and to realize what those people went through. Yeah, and one of those that uh, that died was uh, young Kristen, right? Yep, yeah, an eight-year-old girl, Kristen McCarran. Yeah, so tragic. Uh, so he goes through the hospital, uh, even outside the hospital, into the parking lot. Many, many obviously are shot and wounded. Um, a handful die. Uh what happens now leading up to when you encounter him? And then let's, let's back up to and, and hear your side of the story, uh, how you first heard of the uh, active shooting in progress and your response to it. Okay. Real quick, just, this was before Columbine. There was no training in law enforcement and definitely not in civilian world about what to do during an active shooter. But the patrons and staff that were in the hospital that day, they instinctively did what is trained today. They ran, hid, or, or fought. Mm. They were bailing out uh, windows or locking themselves in offices. And then, like I said, there's two people who fought with him. One individual wrestled with the rifle and, and kept him from entering a shot clinic that had parents and children in it. And he turned and, and went the other direction, seeking easier targets. And then another individual who saw the shooting in a lobby, ran to the pediatric clinic where he was the non-commissioned officer in charge, and he closed a double a set of double fire doors and put his shoulder into them and held them closed while he yelled for people to evacuate the pediatric clinic, and that kept him from entering there. He was on the other side of those doors, pushing on them and, and trying to gain entry, but Sergeant Dave Root held those doors firm until that uh, pediatric clinic was emptied. Wow. And what before, I, before I forget, yeah, definitely. I don't know if, if you were going to mention it, but I just want to say real quick that the body count would have been a lot higher if not for the actions of the men and women of the 92nd Medical Group who risked their lives to render medical aid immediately, even while the gunfire was, was still flying, and that uh, they patched people up and, and kept a lot of people from bleeding to death, or there would have been a lot more people killed yeah it was there was 22 people wounded and five people lost their lives but it would have been a lot worse if not for their actions so melberg had, had made his way through the hospital the firing continuously it was a fairly large facility it was three stories but he stayed on the main floor and chased just after he encountered dave root at the pediatric clinic he chased a a crowd of people down a hallway and out a emergency exit at a loading dock, and he burst out that door and, and was firing at people as they fled across the parking lot and across the lawn, hiding behind cars. And the people who kept moving, they kept leapfrogging 
from car to car and putting cover and distance between themselves and the gunmen. They're the ones who survived. The few people who were shot outside the facility either hid in plain view or or didn't keep moving, hiding behind a car until he walked past them and found them. So he made his way out to the main road that was in front of the hospital, it was Graham Road, and began walking down that road, shooting to his left and his right. And that's, I was on bike patrol. I was usually a motorized patrolman, but Fairchild had a newly implemented bike patrol, and it was my second day of, of riding a bicycle on duty. And it was a pretty warm June day. I had stopped at the back gate that led to Graham Road, and I had just finished patrolling the housing areas on the base and was preparing to head off base to patrol the two housing areas on either side of the hospital. But I ducked into the gate shack to not only say hello to the gate guard, but also rest a bit in the air conditioning. And that's when a call came over the radio, uh, shots fired. Uh, actually, it was an individual in the in the hospital running around with a shotgun, and they had an alarm, a duress alarm at the ER. And when I heard that, I jumped on the bike and started pedaling down Graham Road, which is about three-tenths of a mile away. And I remember the world around me went quiet and felt a sense of calm come over me. It was almost like I was experiencing auditory exclusion already, even though I wasn't ex- experiencing a lethal threat at the time. Mm. But I, I knew that there was something about going on at the hospital I had to get to quickly, so I was pedaling about as fast as I could. There was a lot of vehicles fleeing the area, and several of them rolled their windows down and were yelling at me, trying to tell me what was going on at the hospital. And I couldn't understand them. I couldn't hear what they were saying. But their urgency let me know that there was something bad ahead. I kept pedaling, and as I approached the annex building where he had started the, the shooting, there was a crowd of people running toward me. They were dressed in civilian clothes and hospital whites and Air Force Blues uniforms. And I didn't have a description of the shooter, so I scanned them for a threat as I approached them. And I didn't see one. I rode through the crowd and was asking, where is he? And they all pointed behind themselves and, and yelled that there's a man with a gun. He's shooting people, and he's over there. Once I got through the crowd, I could hear gunfire but I couldn't tell where it was coming from because it was reverberating off the buildings in the area. So I continued to ride forward, and finally I saw an individual in the road dressed in dark clothing and had a long gun at his hip, firing to his left and his right. Okay, there you go. That is part one of of my two-part interview together with Andy Brown, author of Warnings and Heated. And uh, I'm sorry to cut it off there. But uh, we're going to break it into two episodes to make it a little bit more uh, easier to listen to. And uh, so look for part two next week. It'll be released on the Concealed Carry podcast. I I know I'll look forward to it. Uh, But it's not often, as I mentioned, to kick off this episode that you get to speak with someone like him. He's not only a hero in the sense of what he did to stop uh, this event. We're going to get into a lot more of that in part two. Um, but you also have a man that, that wrote the book that is 
very detailed, um, and it really dives into uh, a lot of the story leading up to this event, uh, the backstory, uh, the man involved, uh, Dean Melberg, that committed the, the heinous act. Um, we get a little bit of a glimpse into why he might have done what he did. It's not every time we have one of these active shooting uh, incidents that we are able to get such a, a deep look into some of the backstory and perhaps explore the whys. And I hope that in understanding those whys, which we're going to touch on quite a bit more with Andy in part two, I hope in understanding those whys, whys it helps us hopefully be a little bit better prepared, not only about responding to these events, okay? Understanding the why doesn't help us respond to, to an incident like this if, if we found ourselves placed in that situation. Understanding the whys, though, hopefully gives us an insight into those that we associate with in our day-to-day lives and hopefully recognizing warning signs that we might prevent attacks like this from occurring. Anyway, I know I enjoyed this interview. Uh, Like I said, I look forward to part two. Uh, Tune in next week for that second part of the interview. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense. I know you've been hearing a lot about it recently, but that's because it's really important. And we've been so fortunate that we've joined together with Andrew to bring to you the best legal education related to the law of self-defense. Trust me, if you were ever in a situation where you had to draw or use your gun in self-defense, even in an active shooter incident like we are talking about in this episode today, you are going to want to know how to minimize your vulnerability to prosecution and conviction by helping your defense team build the most compelling narrative of innocence. Andrew has the resources you need through live in-person courses, online training, his best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense, and now his newly released video DVDs. And I hope that you'll check all of that out at concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. Mentioned uh, the uh, live in-person courses, and we've got one coming up here locally in the Denver, Colorado area on November 11th and 12th. Don't miss that. Uh, as uh, we'll have Andrew in person teaching his uh, level one and level two law of self-defense courses. So go to concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D. Get signed up for either that class if you're local to our area here uh, or if you're able to come in for that class. Trust me, even I think coming into Denver for that class is, is worthwhile. But if it's a little bit of a stretch, Go to, go to that link, concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D, and check out his full listing of courses that he teaches all across the country and find one near you. Look into his book, look into those training DVDs and all of his online resources. I hope that you'll do that today. And also today's episode is brought to you by the Brave Response Holster, which um, longtime listeners know you've been hearing about the Brave Response Holster for some time. And it's still there, and it's still a great product. And if you haven't checked it out yet, I hope that you will. One of the reasons the Brave Response Holster was was created uh, by its inventor was they wanted to encourage more people to carry their guns concealed on a daily basis. And to do that, he felt like if he made a better holster that's more comfortable, more concealable, and also one that was convenient in that it would work with a variety of styles of dress, including even situations where we don't often think that we can carry concealed because if we're wearing gym shorts or sweatpants or going to the gym or whatever, sometimes those are a little bit more tricky uh, situations to dress 
uh, and carry concealed with. The Brave Response holster makes all that possible, plus fits nearly any semi-automatic handgun and many types of revolvers. I hope that you'll check it out. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash Brave Response. We do, it is customary that we have a uh, pick of the week. And I do have one for us here today. Uh, recently, I picked up a couple of knives and I'm going to share one of those uh, now. Uh, I just, I, I like this little knife. It is quite little, literally that, it is little. So here you go, folks. Uh, for this week's pick of the week, I am pulling out of the pocket here a Columbia River Knife and Tool, CRKT. This is the Incendor. Uh, it is a smaller profile knife, uh, has nice, you know, nicely textured G10 grips on it. It has, uh, I can't remember what they call this release of theirs, but it's, it's an, it's a spring assisted, uh, opening, uh, the little button release you hit, uh, it's different than some others that you've probably seen out there. It's maybe not as fast as some I've seen either, but with a little bit of practice, it comes out pretty quick, deploys very quickly. It doesn't have a, a terribly long blade. Uh, this one here is about two and three quarters inches. Um, it's a fairly slim profile, which I like. This I've been carrying this one now the uh, last day or so in my ankle cuff carrier rig thing uh, <laughs> from Wilderness Tactical, where I have uh, my trauma, my little individual uh, first aid and trauma kit uh, stashed on my ankle uh, concealed. And so this is just a perfect knife to, to mate with that and, and have in the ankle rig. Uh, so I've got a little backup knife. And so anyway, check out the uh, CRKT in Sendor. Uh, wasn't terribly expensive. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know what the exact retail price is, uh, but I think it's somewhere in the 30 or $40 range. I hope I'm quoting that right. Uh, but it's, it's a reasonable knife, a reasonable price. Actually, I should say it's a great knife for the reasonable price that it is. Uh, you could definitely go and waste a lot of money on on crappier knives. I got another cool knife for you next week. I'll share, and perhaps is my pick next week. Uh, I don't know why I got on, on the knife kick, but there you have it. So pick of the week. Uh, just a reminder that if you haven't already, please leave us some feedback on this podcast. If you're listening through iTunes, it's very easy to do by leaving a review in iTunes for the Concealed Carry Podcast. We hope to earn your five star review. And also, you might consider sharing this interview and others like it with your friends and family, uh, whether that be on Facebook, Instagram, uh, wherever you might choose to, to share this, this episode, because it is a very valuable and an awesome episode to listen to. So please, share the Concealed Carry podcast and uh, this interview that we did with Andy today, as well as part two coming next week. So with that, I'm going to sign off. We'll see you next week. This is Riley again from the Concealed Carry Podcast, hoping that you'll all take care and be safe out there. And just a reminder to train right, train often, train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. Reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.